0: Today on The Black Goat, a man and a woman switch email signatures, dealing with authorship disputes as a graduate student, and ad hominems, when is it okay to criticize the scientist instead of the science? Hi everyone, and welcome to episode four of The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Sravastava. With me today are my co-hosts, Alexa Tullet.
1: Hi Sanjay.
0: And Samin Vizier. Hi Sanjay. So you two are actually together uh in physically in the same location, uh, which is the most we've ever had together for a recording. You guys are in California. Um how how are things down there?
2: Nice. Yeah, they're pretty good.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, um, is it, like, the California, you know, for for anybody who's listening who's never been to California, which was me before I went to graduate school, I assume there's, like, people walking around wearing bikinis and, <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> it's yeah. actually kind of amazing. Like, we've been having cold for California weather until the day Alexa got here, and now it's, like, the
2: high today is, like, 75. And... Nice. But it is cloudy. Nice. It's consistently yeah. warmer in California than it is in Alabama, which doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah that that is strange it's uh i don't know there's i'm sure this is somehow global warming's fault right
2: <laughs> yeah <I think>
0: so. <laughs> so uh um we we thought we'd talk uh start off by talking a little bit about a uh a blog post and sort of twitter discussion about uh gender and how people are treated and Samin, do you want to sort of – this was really interesting. Do you want to tell us uh, what, what that was?
1: Yeah, so I just read a Twitter uh, rant, I guess, and then the accompanying blog post. By, so this is both people involved in this situation. I thought it was really interesting. So they worked at a company. The guy was the supervisor of the woman. And both their supervisor had said that the woman's productivity was slow, too slow and they needed to work on that. And the guy, like, didn't really agree and didn't want to bug his um, – his employee, but he they decided to like to talk about it. And then he had this experience where a client was giving him a really hard time that he was emailing with a client and this client was like kept disagreeing with him and arguing with him and this had never happened to, be- to him before, or it was unusual at least. And then he realized because they share an email account he had accidentally logged in as her and all his emails were being signed as her. And when he like told the client, Hey, actually I'm stepping in for Nicole. And like, this is, I'm taking over now. Then the client like immediately became much more cooperative. So they came up with the idea of doing an experiment and switching email signatures. So treating their clients the same way they would have before, but signing off with each other's names. And they did that for a week. And so the guy's version of the story is like, you know, this sucked. I had a horrible time. Like clients were giving me a really hard time. I'd never experienced this before. And the woman's version of it, and she tells on the blog post, was that like it was a lot easier, and this wasn't surprising to her. Like she had anticipated that that might make a difference. Um, and then when they went and told their boss that they think that's what might be effect- accounting for her lower productivity, the boss didn't buy it at all. So that, there was also more interesting stuff about like what happened before and what happened after. But I thought that experience was really interesting, and I saw one person retweeted it and said like I, I wish all men could have this experience. Um, And it occurred to me, I I wish all women could have this experience, too, because we can't really quantify, right? We sometimes have experiences where we think that our gender might be playing a role in how we're being treated, but we never know for sure. We never know how much is playing a role. There's always alternative explanations. And so, and even in this case, right, it's not airtight. Like, there could be other reasons why people are treating them differently when they switch signatures, but I thought it was really interesting and resonated with me a little bit.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Um, Do you guys think that you um, Write emails in gender Stereotypic ways
0: I You know it's funny I I remember early on uh, You know after I I think I even was sort of aware of this as a graduate student. There's research that higher status people write shorter emails. <laughs> and I so and mm-hmm. I remember sort of becoming aware fairly early in my career. The um, I don't know if it's gendered or status. I mean, those things obviously have complicated relationships. Um, but thinking about, like, you know, was I over explaining myself? Was I spending too much time crafting emails, things mm-hmm. like that? um uh you know should i just be like firing off the one liner response or whatever yeah. um yeah i don't know if there are other sort of status or gender signals in in emails but that that is interesting
2: yeah i think that i've um fluctuated a lot so i like you i also sort of um had this idea of like what uh like a high status email should look like and also like what an assertive email was supposed to look like and i had just like vaguely heard these like, ideas on, I don't know, like, blogs and social media and stuff like that about how, um, like, women can't get away with these, like, um, more direct emails and they have to, like, couch their emails and, mm-hmm. um, and like, comforting language and stuff like that. And so I think when I was a first-year um, assistant professor, I tried to avoid that. So, like, I tried to communicate with people in a way that um, that was really direct and I, like uh, didn't use exclamation points and I didn't use emojis. Um, and so my experience with this like experiment within myself is that, um, I found it much more uncomfortable to communicate in this like very direct, brief, not warm way. Um, and then eventually I switched back to, um, doing what came more naturally to me, which was, you know, warmer. There's like, I, I, consistently use like emojis when I talk to students and the exclamation points. And like, uh, they're like very warm and friendly emails now. Um, and probably they're a little bit longer and they're not, yeah, they're not curt at all. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the, there was one interpretation of that, which is that like, at first I was like deviating from my gender expectations and that was like uncomfortable for me and people responded more poorly to me because I was, you know, violating this expected, Um, role and then when I switched back to the um, like what was more comfortable for me um, people responded better and you know the world is as it should be because I'm now acting like a woman or something like that Um, Mm -hmm. I think like there another possible explanation and of course these are not mutually exclusive is that like um, there are a lot of um, like real positive qualities about like the um Way, the the gender stereotypic female way of communicating um, that for me um, worked in my favor um, and which I actually like better uh, so I think sometimes when you get into these discussions about like like gendered ways of communicating, um, we sort of implicitly privilege the the male stereotypical way of communicating, and we're like, oh it's so shitty that females can't do that um, but f- but I think they're one alternative explanation is just that, like, we undervalue the, like, female way of doing things. um, And, yeah, that, like, that maybe people should be, like, uh, striving to communicate in that way as well or or not dismissing it
0: Yeah, this, I mean, this experiment, it wasn't a controlled experiment, but this sort of experiment was interesting because all they did was switch their email signatures. Mm -hmm. So I assume they probably didn't intentionally change their communication styles. And so it was just that kind of superficial cue seemed to—I mean, superficial, quote unquote, right? But yeah. seemed seemed to change people's responses to them.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because, especially in academia, where we build up our reputation, we have repeated interactions with people. So it, we never have the opportunity really to interact with people who don't know our gender. And if our names are gendered, and that's even even with strangers, they know right away. But I yeah. wonder, like, people who have gender-neutral names, what that's like for them to like interact over email with somebody, and then before that person knows their gender, and then if people change how they are. It reminds me, one of my favorite essays is called Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit. Mm -hmm. I think it's the origin of the word mansplaining, Mm -hmm. Um, and she talks about this man who like mansplained her own essay or book. I can't remember it to her. It's a great essay. Um, And it reminded me of a time when I was was sitting around with a group of people. They're all professors and uh, some postdocs. And I was talking about, like, a paper that I had handled as editor, and then I sent it to reviewers, and the reviewers said this, and blah, 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 and then I had to, like, make a difficult decision or something like that. And I told this story, like, pretty much how I just told it, but with more details. And there was a guy who I think was a postdoc at the time who was sitting at the table, and he was like, oh, and then what did the editor do? Mm-hmm. And I was like, how does this story make sense if I'm not the editor? And it reminded <laughs> me of that joke with, like, the doctor who yeah, yeah, operate yeah, yeah, on yeah. there. You know, the the plane crashes and the father and son are on the plane and the doctor has to operate. And she says, it's not my I can't do it because it's my son or whatever. And it plays on how hard it is for people to, like, bend their mind around something that a, a stereotype they probably didn't even realize that they had. But is so strong that they're like, I don't understand that story. Where is the
0: editor? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I remember... When I first started teaching, I would have, you know, my I would see big differences between how students interacted with my female TAs and my male TAs, right? They would they're just kind of not accept the authority of these like twenty-three year old women who are there like, Who the fuck are you? Um and the twenty three year old dudes, they'd be like, Yeah, whatever, we'll you know, we'll go along with it and so, you know, I think there's something to it. But it, it is it's hard because yeah, like you said, we don't often Live in someone else's sort of you know persona the way they're they're viewed by the world um and so you you know i you go through life sort of knowing that sexism and other isms racism and everything else is out there um and you know in the aggregate it's affecting you, mm-hmm. but you don't know in any one instance right like you know, did this person just make an innocent mistake? Did this person is this per- is this person this way to everybody? Whatever, but uh, and so having this chance to switch is like holy cow! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really, it, you know, it was really stark. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's. Uh, we've got a. Uh, we've got a letter. Should we move on to our letter?
2: Yes. Let's read the letter.
0: All right. Letter of the week. Alexa, take it away.
2: Okay. Um, here's the letter. Dear the black goat. My data was used by fellow graduate students who subsequently published using this data with permission from my advisor, but I wasn't aware of the situation. I did not receive authorship or any acknowledgement for this publication. Is this something that is academically acceptable? Should I say something to my advisor about the situation? Signed, Anonymous. Yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about this, especially um, I think these kinds of questions become um more difficult to answer when data is collected like more as a team in a lab. So like mm-hmm. yeah. Mean, I could totally or see second.
1: myself doing this as the advisor. So like we collect big studies and so it's everyone's data, but I often make decisions if like a collaborator or like a other third party approaches me and says, Hey, like would it be Okay, if I use these data for this project that has nothing to do with anything we were going to do, I could imagine making that decision without consulting the graduate students on the project and and forgetting to think about like what credit and acknowledgement they should get. So that doesn't make it okay. I'm not defending that. I'm just saying, like, just that was my first thought. Is like, oh shit, like I have probably done something like this. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I think a lot hinges on what what my data means, yeah. right? The the so. You know, I think the, the standard for authorship, and this is something that, that gets confused sometimes, the standard for authorship is intellectual contribution, not labor, right? Like, if you hire a technician to, you know, follow your instructions, that person has, hasn't earned authorship, Um and so was this just data was this a study that the advisor designed that the advi- you know advisor or other people sort of came up with the idea and the graduate student uh just sort of you know ran the sessions um or or you know the the letter says my data and so does that mean that the the person actually made an intellectual contribution designing the study making sort of consequential decisions about what to do um, if if that's the case, then I, I think they have, you know, I, 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 and, and that's probably the usual meaning of my data, then I, I think that they do have a, uh, um, you know, a case to be made there that they they at least, you know, maybe they didn't do so much that, like, they ought to be on the final paper, but they should have been invited to be on it, given the opportunity, given sort of first right of refusal, if they designed a study and collected the data set. And it's not, we're not talking, I assume, about open data. That they, you know, made a decision to put out in the public, um, that, that does seem to be a problem.
2: Yeah. For me, this highlights like, uh, something that I think is generally a conflict between graduate students and advisors, which is just like the perspective taking barrier between those two positions. So I remember this being really obvious to me when I was like a senior graduate student and I was friends with Samin, who's a faculty member. Um, and so sometimes I would tell her about things that my advisor did, and I would be, like, confused as to why he did them, and she would say, like, yeah, well, from the perspective of someone who's also an advisor, like, that totally makes sense, or, like, I totally understand how somebody could do that and, like, forget to, like, consider how that would look from your perspective or whatever. Um, And then I, like, then switched from the role of being a graduate student to being a professor, Um, and then it became really obvious to me, too. Like, I would do things, and my students would, like, point them out to me, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I totally... Like missed how that would look from your perspective, Um, and so like this sounds like an example of that. I mean, I'm not saying that this is like an excuse because I think that it is really important to try to like take the perspective of um, your graduate students and um, to consider like issues of fairness and um, whether people feel like excluded and like their their work is not appreciated or something like that or not valued, Um, but. Yeah, like, I mean, I also have the reaction of, um, it's, I could, I could imagine making this perspective taking error. Right.
0: I mean, I think the, you know, that line I mentioned between there's the sort of doing labor and then there's, uh, um, intellectual contribution, and that gets blurred all the time in both directions, right? So, you know, students sometimes think because I put in hours on this that that means authorship. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Um, but, you know, PIs, faculty member, also sometimes uh, um, confuse those two things and, and compensate people with authorship when they are just doing labor and vice versa. I, mean, I remember hearing one time about a professor, uh, a PI, who would give his graduate students a choice. He'd say either you can be funded over the summer or you can be an author on this paper and you decide. And that to me seemed really awful, right? Because it's like there's no inherent conflict between being an author and being paid. And I've heard of this happening with statistical consultants as well and that sort of thing. And it's like if you made an intellectual contribution, you should be an author. If you did labor, you should be compensated somehow for it unless you agreed up front to do it for free. Um... And those those are independent questions. And so, uh, um, yeah, you know, and so it's possible, I mean, I could imagine a situation like this where maybe the advisor paid the graduate student, they were on a grant or whatever, and the advisor thinks, uh, well, you got yours. But if the graduate student actually, you know, came up with the study idea and did all that, then then they would have a position to to be asking for authorship as mm-hmm. well.
1: Yeah. And in terms of like, should I say something to my advisor? I think ideally, yes. I mean, unless you have a bad relationship with your advisor, I think it's absolutely good to have a conversation about this and, you know, come at it with like asking what their rationale was and wanting to understand how these decisions are made. And it can be, you can even frame it as like part, as part of my development as an academic, I want to understand these things better and understand how people make these decisions. And would you be willing to like, talk to me about your thought process for making this decision? And what would it what would need, have needed to be different for me to have a say in this or to be invited to be a co-author? Um, I also think one thing I try to do, and i 'm not always great about this is that anytime anybody starts talking about a project, we talk about authorship right away with the understanding that it can be re, re, we can revisit that, but so that when people are deciding how much to invest in a project, they know what to expect about whether or not they'll be an author and and what authorship order they'll have which can be super awkward if it's like the first meeting about a project but i've tried to force myself to do that because i think that it's only fair for everyone to have that information when they decide how much time to put into a project so Mm -hmm. i think that might be something you could talk about also more (coughs) generally not just about this project but like in general like approaching advisor about like could we have like a general process where we people know what what to expect about these
2: kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, the question of, of saying something to your advisor, I mean, um, because of my assumption that many of these situations arise because of, yeah, just a lack of sort of, um, attention to, or like awareness of what other people's, um, perspectives are like in these situations. I think that like talking about these things can clear up like a lot of misunderstandings. And I think that it can become, um, yeah, really Really toxic if you start to sort of make assumptions about people's motives um, without sort of discussing uh, what actually went on with them. Um, so, in my experience as a graduate student, um, I had some conversations like this that that were awkward at first, but then I think really strengthened my relationship with my advisor and also allowed me to you know have more insight into his thought process in these situations. Um, but also as an advisor, I would be I would be really Sad if one of my graduate students thought like that a situation like this had happened and that I didn't have their best interests at heart and I was making a decision that sort of like neglected um yeah neglected their best interests and they never talked to me about it. I would really want them to talk to me about it um so that we could like resolve um resolve any misunderstandings
0: yeah i mean I, I think we should be careful. Not to project too much of ourselves into this, just because there are some pretty shitty exploitative advisors yeah. out there too. I would say, you know, as a background in general, the general advice though I think is solid, which is yes, you should talk to your advisor, right? Like, it, you really should be having those conversations up front. It's that's on the advisor as much as, or even more than, on the graduate student to sort of establish those norms. But yeah, I think uh, um, I think the, the the letter writer here should to definitely have a conversation. Mm
1: -hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's easy to underestimate how... So I think it's really easy as an advisor to not know that something's important to your grad student. And as a grad student, you can be like, how could they not know that authorship is important to me? Or how could they not know that $500 for this conference would make a huge difference for me? But it's so easy to forget that as an advisor to just not think about it. So yeah. if you have yeah. a good relationship with your advisor, it's always good to let them know what is or isn't important to you and not make demands, but just say, Hey, this would make a big difference. For yeah. Me. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, so, uh, speaking of, uh, calling people shitty, like advisors, <laughs> um, <laughs> our main topic for today, uh, let's move on to talking about ad hominems. So this is something that's been discussed a lot in the, I feel like this has been a sort of like, topic that's coming up on again off again for the last year or so at least kind of in in conversations in psychology um and you know probably other fields as well like how do you draw the line between criticizing science and criticizing a scientist um is it ever appropriate to sort of in in various forums criticize a scientist uh, you know and and if so how do you do it um so uh yeah i mean there's a saying right that like you should criticize the science i don't know if it's a saying with this idea out mm-hmm. there that you should criticize the science not the scientist what do we think of that
1: isn't that a saying with kids like you're supposed to like blame the action but not the i don't know yeah don't about well yeah that.
0: that comes out of like right that that's in the like the marriage the the you know the marital conflict literature like john mm-hmm. gottman stuff right like the, and uh, and other stuff about attributions you Aye. should make you know you know, it's not like you're an uncaring person. It's like you should bring me flowers or something. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I think it's interesting because there is a double standard here, right? When when it's praise, we we think that it's fine to praise the scientists, to give them credit. To you know, the the good stuff follows a scientist, so we give personal credit for successes, but we're not supposed to make blame or criticism personal. So there's an asymmetry there Maybe And I'm not saying That's a bad thing But it's interesting
2: Right
0: Yeah, I think uh, um, Yeah, praise is I mean, I guess we, uh, You know, praise is like I mean, there's there's a form of praise That's just kind of like Throw away Like, oh, blah, blah, blah They're great But we, we also, you know we, we accumulate actual Sort of consequential Professional credit right. From praise, yeah, right? I meant credit more than praise Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's tough. So I think I looked up um, ad hominem on Wikipedia before the podcast, <laughs> and so the entry is about the ad hominem fa- fallacy, but they point out that it doesn't always have to be a- – an ad hominem argument isn't always a fallacy. So it depends if if the speaker's character is relevant to their claim or is relevant to their credibility, then it might be appropriate to discuss or criticize the speaker's character or – yeah. yeah,
2: So, I thought that I knew what people meant when they said "criticize the science, not the scientists." Maybe because it's such a well-established saying, as you were saying, Sanjay. Um, but now that now that we're talking about it in more detail, actually, I'm not totally sure what people mean when they say that. Um, when people say that you should criticize the science, but not the scientists, like what exactly is? I, I can imagine situations where I think that separation is clear. Wait, you're but. a psych map moderator.
1: You should be an expert on this. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it about like not inferring motive? No one ever criticizes the scientist on psych map. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so I mean, yeah, like, let's say somebody, you know, somebody publishes a paper that you think, uh, you know, you disagree with, uh, you might say, like, you know, here are the ways that the evidence doesn't support the conclusions, right? That that would be kind of uh, you know criticizing the science and then you know the the sort of the cartoon version is like you know Alex is a dumbass for thinking that this evidence supports this conclusion right that 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 so this is the Both like cartoon villain version of it <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think a lot of times for the person on the receiving end it, i mean this is it's often like people don't necessarily see that that distinction is being drawn even when it is right yeah. and and this goes back to your point Samin, about how like we you know our professional success and standing comes from our work. And so if somebody says, oh, criticize, you know, Sanjay's paper, you know, Srivastava 2000 and whatever, the conclusions don't follow from the data, you know, they're clearly incorrect. Um, A lot of people will sit there and go, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, how how dare you say that about me?
2: I mean, is it more useful to say, like, criticize... Uh, people's work in a way that, you know, like, sort of is respectful and gives them the benefit of the doubt versus, like, criticize their, you know, work in a way that, um, yeah, is, like, insulting and disrespectful. Because, like, I can imagine somebody saying to me, like, hey, like, you as a person are totally fine, but... You know the like conclusion that you drew in your paper is like completely insane and like, you're, like it's a dumbass <laughs> <Right>. conclusion. <laughs> you're not a dumbass, right. but the conclusion you drew is and like that that's like not a distinction to me. Um, yeah. So oh,
0: that's interesting. Cause guess, that that is the distinction that people are trying to make, right? They're saying like. It's okay to say the conclusion doesn't follow from the data. It's not okay to say Alexa drew the wrong conclusion.
2: Right. But I think that 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 distinction is correlated with a separate distinction, which is just like something that's like a little bit more or less respectful, right? Because you can criticize the science in a way that's really disrespectful. And when you criticize like somebody's work in a way that you are identifying like logical errors that they made or, you know, like, uh, like really obvious oversights that they made, um, then the fact that you're, like, targeting the work is still going to be hurtful to the person. And, it, and I'm not saying that we should necessarily be concerned with, like, what's hurtful or not, but um, that's still going to feel like an insult to the person, right? Um, you know what's interesting to me is, like, we
1: all take these slings and arrows in the review process, and we, it, we're expected to be hurtful. We expect to have to lick our wounds for yeah, a while. Right. You know, if we get a decision letter, you brace yourself and you yeah. know that it's gonna suck. If you if you submitted a grant, you know that like Thanksgiving week is gonna be yeah. terrible. <laughs> um, and we we've learned to accept that, but for some reason after it's published, we have a very, very different attitude about I think I suspect even if the exact same criticism was leveled before versus after publication, we would be equally hurt, but we would feel more justified in saying that's not okay after publication than during the period of yeah the process.
0: well there's a public private distinction there yeah. right and and i think that you know that goes to this you know this idea like the, this is kind of it's there there's a line sometimes you can you know you can clearly draw the line but the the consequences get blurred especially when it's public because if i say you know somebody drew the wrong conclusion then the implication and if i or if i just say that this- in this article this conclusion doesn't follow from the evidence the implication is that the Author drew the wrong conclusion, right? You, you,
1: right. you know,
0: the author was the, like that. Conclusion came from a human being. Right. I'm not saying you're a dumbass, you know. but
1: only a dumbass would make that mistake. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I'm not saying you're a dumbass, but this is a dumbass thing that you said. Um, and so, so, but I think you know, it's still nevertheless like I, I mean, as a you know, as a personality psychologist, you know, I sort of think about this in terms of like personality assessment, and we wouldn't use a single instance of behavior to draw sort of a firm conclusion about somebody's personality in most cases, right? right? And so if I want to say like, you know, so-and-so is a terrible scientist um, or so-and-so is a shoddy scientist or or whatever, then I have to have more than one study to make that conclusion. And so maybe the implication of one study is, well, this raises some suspicion, but I, I shouldn't actually go there and say, you know, so-and-so does terrible work, unless I can back that up with pretty robust evidence across sort of multiple data points.
2: Yeah. I think it has to do, too, with the centrality of what, you are, um, what you're criticizing, right? Like, if somebody were to say something about me that was clearly ad, well, ad hominem, it was clearly, like, something about me, like, I think in this paper you drew the wrong conclusion or you chose the wrong analysis, or you didn't consider this alternative explanation. You know, some of those things, like, they're going to be okay with me because I understand that, like, there are sometimes that I make errors or I don't make the best decision. Um, if somebody were to say to me, I read your paper and I realize that you're a terrible scientist. Yeah. Like,
0: I mean, <laughs>
2: scientist is more central to my identity than, like, any individual decision could be. Um, so for me, maybe it feels like sort of a continuum. And... Uh, the goal of sort of, like, targeting the science rather than, like, the person. Um, it was just sort of, like, making the... making the criticism sort of, like, less central to somebody's identity. But sometimes that's hard to do, right? Because sometimes the, the like, mistakes that people make or the criticisms that we have of people really are relevant to things that are very central. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think one of the reasons this ad hominem thing is coming up so much lately um, is because I think... So before the replicability crisis, the kinds of criticisms we might um, raise are things like, oh, you forgot to include this covariate or you didn't use a latent variable or whatever. Now they're much more likely to be like, oh, you inadvertently exploited flexibility in mm-hmm. data analysis. So Great. I think a lot of times now the criticisms have to do with, you may not realize it, but you were engaging in mo- motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. And I think that feels so much worse to people. And they, I think I've often, not often, but I've had conversations where I, I try to raise that issue as a possibility in a way that, like, I try to frame it as, like, it's human and it, this happens. Everybody, I'm sure, I've done it, but, like, do you think that maybe this happened? And I often get the reaction or I see people having their reaction. So, to be honest, I don't. I don't raise I haven't figured out a way to raise this, so I haven't done it very much. but. I see interactions where people have the reaction of, like, I would know if I was engaging in motivated reasoning. (laughs) And, like, how dare you? Like, even so, we don't use the word p-hacking because that raises people's hackles. So things like flexibility in data analysis, which seems more objective, right? It's saying, look, you had six different measures of this, and you focus on these two. Do you think maybe that's cherry-picked? Or, like, we can't say cherry-picked, so we say, do you think maybe that if you had thought of it ahead of time, you wouldn't necessarily have picked those two before seeing the outcome of the analyses. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard to have that conversation without making someone defensive. And it's interesting because we're psychologists and most of us are social psychologists, at least to some extent, uh, having these conversations. And yet we're like really not willing to entertain the possibility of motivated reasoning influencing our data analysis.
2: So do you think that that defensiveness is coming from like, we want to see ourselves as like the only people that are immune to motivated reasoning. Like, I mean, I always find this like really interesting with social psychologists because, um, yeah, these are people who spend so much time learning about and studying motivated reasoning. And still we seem like really reluctant to acknowledge in ourselves, but also, so I'm wondering like, is it that people don't want to see themselves as susceptible to motivated reasoning? Or is it that people think motivated reasoning is code for you are intentionally manipulating like yeah, Mike, yeah. i th- i
0: think there's so there there's you know when when you raise things that look like p hacking or, or that sort of thing there is a defensiveness that that often comes up and you know uh, and, and and there's a difference right so so i mean i haven 't done this very much because i don 't had an occasion to, but like if you read an experiment where it wasn 't blinded, like you know the the experimenters and maybe even the subjects, but definitely the experimenters knew the conditions, and you say you know this would be this would have been a stronger design if the you know the experimenters were blind to conditions, or you even say like you didn 't report whether or not the experimenters were blind to conditions, I think there's kind of an understanding out there because this has been around a long time that blinded designs are better. And that uh, um, when, they're, when they introduce, when unblinded designs introduce bias, it's not necessarily like you're deliberately trying to make the data come out the way you want to. It's just like it might inadvertently happen. And I think the, you know, people don't view discussions of data analysis that way. The idea that like, look, if you didn't either pre-register or blind yourself in some way during the data analysis, that there are ways that your biases can express themselves in the data analysis. Like that's a that's a very similar concept yeah. but people don't see it that way. They see yeah, it as if you if you tell me that my I have four studies and the p was 0.043 in every one of them and that you know you're not sure that this is very strong evidence then people will flip out at that and they'll go how dare you accuse me of p hacking or file drawing or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean I think it's interesting because I think it is more ad hominem to accuse somebody of p hacking because you're saying they have a weakness, right? They're susceptible to this. Influence that they they they're not perfectly rational, right? And as to, as opposed to saying you made a mistake or you don't know about the statistical analysis or whatever, which doesn't feel like a a, a character flaw, right? Just the fact, the fact that I don't know SEM is not a character flaw. The fact that. I didn't, that I, I could be influenced by my motives when I'm trying to be a scientist. It, it kind of is I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, but your, your analogy is really interesting because you're right. Like ex, we blind experimenters to the subject's conditions because of a, a potential character flaw of like letting your, the experimenter's biases and expectations and hopes and dreams mm-hmm influence the results, but it's not the, usually not the PI, right? Usually the, the professor is not the experimenter, so it doesn't require them yeah. accepting their own character weakness of being influenced by things that a good scientist should not be influenced by. It just requires them believing that their undergrad research assistants or their grad students are susceptible to that.
0: Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, this is really where that science versus scientists is one of the places, or I guess another place that it breaks down, right, is that, you know, ultimately the if you're going to say well i'm just gonna make judgments on the data and the evidence and the arguments about it, you know we talked about how the scientist produces the arguments, the scientist also produces the data you know the scientist's behavior is part of the data generating process, and you know which includes the analysis if the data quote unquote are the reported statistics then then it includes that it includes the data you know the raw data in the lab and so we can't get away from having the scientists sort of behavior and, and then as a result, their credibility in what they say about their behavior. Um, and you know, from a sort of like, you know, abstract, like we understand that human beings have motivated reasoning, then it's totally, it's not like morally significant to say that people have biases and their hopes and dreams might affect uh, what they observe. Um, but, but often we take it that way.
2: Okay. I have a question for you guys. You have to be a hundred percent honest.
0: All right, Keep it a hundred. Let's go. We, oh wait, is that trademarked shit? We might uh, have to delete that.
2: <laughs> I have to bleep that out. I don't know how to do yeah. that. At Sorry, uh,
0: Larry Wilmore, TM. Anyway, go on. Yeah.
2: Okay. Do you guys think that you're better than average at avoiding motivated reasoning?
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna be Socrates here and say that I think the fact that I believe I'm susceptible to motivated reasoning is an advantage over before when I didn't think I was. So I'm just going to compare myself to my past self. So I think now I have less trust in myself than I did before. And so that doesn't reduce my motivated reasoning, but I think I've tried to implement, and I keep trying to improve in this way, uh, ways in which readers don't have to trust me as much. So sharing data, uh, yeah, other
2: things. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of, I guess... You know, it depends on the meaning of avoid, right? So psychologically, am I better at avoiding reasoning like inside my own head? I have no clue, um, and so I, I, I probably like okay. If you if if you got me like three shots of whiskey before this podcast, I'd probably say yeah, I think I am, and and my arrogance would sort of show through that way, uh-huh. right? But you know, procedurally, what I'm trying to do is like we're starting to pre-register in my lab. Um, is is i 'm trying so so that 's a form of quote unquote avoiding motivated reasoning, but it 's not a psychological form it 's a procedural right. form, and essentially you know what I want to do is try to find the ways that I could fail in that regard and then render my psychology irrelevant so that yeah. Um, I can, you know, do things in a way that it doesn't matter whether I'm better or worse than anybody else. Um, that that you know, my motivated reasoning. Because what I do know for sure is that it's far greater than zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I'm better and worse than anyone else, but I know I have it, and so I'm just trying to sort of bit by bit. And you know, it's it's been harder than than some people sometimes make it seem to start pre-registering we we've done it fairly recently we haven't published anything pre-registered yet but we're you know we're really trying to incorporate that incorporate blinded analysis to other things to sort of make me kind of unable to to motivatedly reason into a set of results i
1: think another advantage that sanjay and i have is that we've publicly spoken out about these things and so we now have the fear of being hypocrites and so so like i just submitted a paper with a pretty small sample size um, and so I'm very, very <sighs> conscious of like how that's gonna look, and so trying to like self-flagellate as much as possible in the paper and be like, this, this is absolutely not definitive. You basically and can't like, learn
2: anything from this paper. Yeah,
1: I mean, we, yeah, <laughs> we basically like say over and over again, like this is basically like a proof of concept that this method could be used, but we basically haven't even really started using it yet. But maybe somebody else will. <laughs> yeah. And I think that the the accountability, which some people might call methodological terrorism, but I see it as like this positive force that it's a kind of accountability that, like, I've gone on record saying that we should care a lot about sample size, among other things. And now, if I'm going to try to publish something with a small sample, I better think about how how people are going to react on Twitter and on all these terrible Mm -hmm. social media sites where they attack (laughs) people. I think it's a great thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I, I think, you know, to. Like in some ways, I mean that's absolutely true. That like I think there's a risk of us being held accountable um, for for having said things, and I think that that does help in some ways. I, the the flip side of that is like we're gonna get a lot of credibility. Like, people are going to trust us because we've been outspoken on these things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I at least try to avoid like complacency. Like, I think it would be easy to say, like, people will trust me because I've spoken out on these things. Um, and I don't want that to be the case That's either. That's interesting.
1: That yeah. did not occur to me. I only thought about the opposite that, like, wow, it's going to be. S- like, I need to be prepared to be like, yep, I don't always practice what I preach. I'm prepared for people to point that out. I'm, like, waiting for the psych methods yeah. group to, like, to point it out. Yeah. And, I'm, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't mean that as, like, I'm scared of it. I am a little nervous about it, but I, I've been criticized on psych, map, or on psych methods a couple of times. And I've often felt like, this is good. This is how science should work. And, like, yeah, maybe for an hour it didn't feel great. But, like, overall I'm glad yeah. this exists.
0: But I I think so that, you know, I mean, talking about ad hominems and talking about like when these things do blow up beyond just sort of like, you know, there's like little bits of criticism and whatever that are sort of the normal part of scientific discourse. But then it seems like every so often and and this is I think people who aren't active on social media think this is the only thing that ever happens Mm -hmm. because these are the only things if you're not on Twitter, this is the only thing you ever hear about because it blows up. There's like... The high-volume day-to-day stuff is just sort of, like, not even critical most of the time. It's just, like, mm-hmm. you know, stupid jokes or people asking, like, straightforward questions and conversations and whatever. But when things blow up, it's usually, like, some criticism of somebody. You know, I think most recently there's been a lot of discussion about Brian Wansink and what's gone on in his lab. But there, you know, there was the whole blow-up with Andrew Gelman's blog about Susan Fiske, uh, um... And that back and forth, and you know, so these things do sometimes blow up, yeah. um, and and at least what what I've observed, I, I think I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, is like often there's if if somebody seems like they're engaging, it kind of dies down, right? So, you know, an example of this is like there was a triple R, a, a registered replication report of a study that Eli Finkel did. And it couldn't replicate a thing that he had previously published. And he kind of came out and he said, yeah, I, I'm persuaded by the triple R. I think that, you know, this specific effect probably, you know, they're they're probably right. It's probably not replicable. It was probably, you know, a, a type one error, et cetera. And the whole thing just sort of blew over. Like nobody was, you know, everyone's like, great, okay, cool. Um, and that's great when that works out that way. The, you know, the, the blow up seemed to happen when people... Don't engage so and and there's a and, and there's a line that I don't think has been distinguished enough because or there's a too high of a correlation between not engaging and substantively disagreeing and I don't quite know yet so I have a theory that if somebody substantively disagrees but engages it won't blow up a case but most of, of the that. time it's one or the other oh well, so yeah
1: Fifth track after the um, smiling the Oh, facial feedback. Facial feedback study, the triple R. He engaged a lot on, on psych map. Yeah.
0: But not, not substantively. He was, you know, he was disparaging people. I mean, some of the things he said were, you know, about the, like, the design of the study and that kind of thing were, were pretty disparaging. I mean, substantively over the science, right? So this, I think this he would is, say that he
1: was engaging substantively Like, he was asking, yeah. like, is it reverse p-hacking a possibility? That seems mm-hmm. like a legitimate question that someone yeah. with a sincere uh, – so I agree some of his comments were not – did not seem – focused on substantive, trying to get at the substantive disagreement, but some I think were, or at least could argue were.
0: Yeah.
2: So, um, you guys have raised an issue a couple of times that I'm I think is really interesting, the issue of like um, being a hypocrite. Um, and so like, when when I asked you guys like whether you thought that you were better or worse than average at motivated reasoning, I only did... Um, I only did one shot of whiskey before this podcast. <laughs> um, but I'll admit that, like, I feel like I'm better than average. Um, and I think that there's also, along with that, there's, like, this awareness that you guys are talking about that that feeling is an illusion. Um, and I'm very convinced that that feeling is an illusion. And so, you know, as a consequence of that, I think that um, I try to, yeah, take steps to tie my own hands um, and make sure that, like, I can't, like, allow myself to um, depend on that feeling um and some of those, yeah, steps that, that tie your hands just set you up to look like a hypocrite, you know, if you like don't engage in these practices, which I think is a good thing, right? It's good to set ourselves up to be um hypocrites if we're not doing the things that we um that we advocate for. But then at the same time, so like um the reason that like I'm friends with Samin today is because like the first time that I had a conversation with her, um, she told me that she um was like deliberately being a hypocrite. And she thought that in a particular instance, um, that was like the right thing to do. Um, and I think if you think about it from like a cognitive dissonance perspective, right? You can think about situations where your behavior doesn't align with um, your, your stated attitudes. And there are like a couple of ways to um, resolve that situation. You could change your attitudes to fit your behavior, which often means compromising your principles. Um, you can change your behavior, but that's not always possible. Or there's the third option, which is that you can just like sit with that dissonance and be a hypocrite and say, you know, things that are inconsistent with your behavior sometimes, and just acknowledge that sometimes you're inconsistent. And in this particular instance, Samine was describing a case where she had done that. And I really like admired that. Like, I think it made me like, uh, trust her and think that she had like a lot of self-awareness. Um, and also, yeah, that, that she was maybe less susceptible to like, Um, I don't know, yeah, motivated reasoning than other people. It's hard because you could definitely take that too far, right?
1: Like, I could say, like, every time I cheat, I can be like, yep, cheating is wrong, and I did it that time, I shouldn't (laughs) have done it, like, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think, like, sometimes when people feel like they're being personally attacked, and they may maybe the criticism was actually pretty objective, like, focusing on the science and so on, I think that feeling comes from being put in that position where your options are either to disown the value and say, no, I think my behavior was fine, I don't know why you're attacking me, I think it's perfectly okay to do that behavior, which makes you look bad because it's a value that's not popular, or to um, deny that you did the behavior and stand by your values and so on, or to admit that you're a hypocrite, and all those options feel wrong and feel bad, and so it's like people feel cornered, they feel like they're put in a position where there's no way out, they can't admit that the behavior was wrong, they can't deny that the value is important. so i think if we made it more okay if we found a way or if people felt more okay saying like and like dana carney i thought was a great example of that of mm-hmm. saying like yeah that behavior was not what i would now consider good scientific practice and just be okay with that and like
0: yeah i mean i think the you know hypocrisy is Right, like there, there's ways there's ways out of like really sort of, I mean, like a hardcore of hypocrisy, just like these two things are inconsistent, there's no resolution. There, there are ways to out of that. So one is like to change, to say, you know, I, I used to be less aware of this and, and now I'm more aware. That was kind of how Dana Carney yeah. described, you know, her approach to the power posing. You know, another way is to sort of, um, you know, go back to principle. I mean, like Samin, you know, submitting a paper with a small sample size you know the way you know the, the way to deal with that is to to say like what are the you know what's the what are the what's the problem with a small sample size well there's certain conclusions that you can't confidently draw okay the way i'm going to resolve that is i'm not going to i'm going to try to like include more caveats around those conclusions so that i'm not doing the thing that's a problem with it right so you sort of go deeper i mean kind of like you shouldn't publish small sample papers isn't really the heart of your point anyway it's not it's not your position it's it's that you know sample size has the following consequences and so you make yourself sort of consistent with that mm-hmm. um and so i think there's you know there's ways to resolve hypocrisy by going you know sometimes by going back to principles or you know adopting new principles that that don't make you just sort of like yep i think cheating's wrong and i did it anyway but
1: sometimes you do just fuck up right and so i think those are the times when people call say ad hominem right they were like there's just not a good explanation for what they did and it's embarrassing and and often actually i feel like they're It's not even that embarrassing. Like I feel like often people, and I think there's social psychology research on this that there's like some kind of spotlight effect where we feel like a small mistake in other people's eyes when 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 we're the target, when we're the actor in that situation, we feel like it's super embarrassing and so on. So then we feel attacked, Um, and I think we're never going to be able to avoid bad practices. Like even the most well-intentioned and most well-trained people are going to sometimes do things wrong either intentionally because they're lazy sometimes or unintentionally because they forgot or whatever so we need to be able to 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 criticize those actions and also to accept that criticism in a way without getting defensive I do think it's important to point out too that there are ad hominem attacks that are not appropriate and that go too far and that are not okay and I don't want to deny that those exist Mm -hmm. and and denounce those Um, yeah but but it's harder to talk about that I don't know it's I don't know. We haven't really talked about that, but I don't yeah. know.
0: Like when do things go too far?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that that happens, right? I don't want to deny I think it's exaggerated. I don't think it happens as much as people think, and I think a lot of times when people shout that say claim that that's what happened in a particular instance, I disagree, but I don't I do think there are instances where that happens.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the you know, um, yeah, you can you can look at an argument, at, you know, at least for me as an outsider, I can look at it at a argument or a discussion, I can say, would, you know, would I be just as persuaded without that element in it? And if the answer is yes, then it probably didn't need to be there. Um, uh, you know, at the same time, like, yeah, I think the ambiguous cases are when someone is, you know, uh, um, someone be who's being criticized you know they were the scientists in the lab who produced the data and so they're implicated or they're saying take my word for it about something and and then it's like well you gave me no choice i gotta <laughs> if i'm gonna criticize this and you're saying take my word for it you know you're credit you've you've put your credibility into the discussion but yeah absolutely there there are cases and there you know there are cases where people just kind of like you know yeah, take it too far. They they get snarky. They want to get attention for a point, and so they you know they figure if they put something a certain way, it'll get more attention.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like originally when we started talking about this, um, you know, I think I was kind of focusing on the fact that I think that the line between the science and the scientist is kind of blurry. Um, but definitely from ex- from personal experience, I think the more that you can. Um, make criticisms sort of like less centrally about the person; the more effective that is, right? And that's how I try to structure conversations with my graduate students, and that's how I try to approach reviewers' comments, right? Is just by thinking, um, okay, like I'm commenting on a decision that you made or a choice that you made, um, and not like you know, like these qualities that are central to you. And that's yeah, like like I said, that's how I try to read reviews; like they're they're commenting on my decisions and like. Um, Not on who I am, Uh, so I think there is something very productive about trying to shift the discussion in that um, in that direction. Um, But I think that our identities will always be tied up in the decisions that we make in our work. Like that's what we care about doing good work. Yeah. So like one of the rules on
1: Psych Map is that we shouldn't speculate about people's motives, which I think so that that one i struggle with because again like talking about flexibility and data analysis or p hacking we are talking about people's motives we're saying you unbeknownst to you or maybe unbeknownst to you you were influenced about which result which analyses to pick and which to report based on what you wanted to believe and so we're inherently speculating on their motives but not them in particular right we're saying because you're human we have to consider the possibility that you were motivated in your selection of analyses and so on. But so that then I think it's a matter of degree. Once you're speculating about motives as a human being, you're saying it's not, nothing specific about you, but just because you're human and we know this about humans, et cetera, then where do you draw the line? And is it ever okay to speculate on motives beyond that? Like, I think that's, that's a, a line that a lot of people draw that I'm not sure that I would draw the line there in particular,
2: Yeah, I, I identify with that point because I do think that it's, um, it's desirable to not make assumptions about people's motives, um, which, yeah, I mean, that's basically what the sounds are, like, right? Speculating about people's motives. Um, of course it makes sense to care about what people's motives are, right? Like, mo- people's motives are, like, very relevant to drawing conclusions about, like, uh, what they're claiming, um, I don't know, I guess like maybe maybe another way to think about that is just sort of like trying to um have a pretty high bar uh before you start to like infer really negative motives,
0: yeah, I mean, I think you can you know yeah, and there there's a way of sort of stopping short of that where you say you know look at you know look at here's this like you know. Here, here's this piece of evidence and here's this piece of evidence and you know, or or here's this this study with three significant findings at P equals 0.04 and tiny power and whatever. Um and you know, you can sort of say you can go up to that point without you know, and you can say, I can't I can't think of a, you know, a reason why I should accept this as evidence or, you know, and you don't have to say like, yeah, because the author's a dirty, dirty p hacker. <laughs>
2: Yeah, right. Although,
0: uh, although maybe maybe you should. And there are also
2: times when, like, um, you could argue that somebody is speculating about people's motives, but they're motives that everybody has, right? right? That's like, what I yeah. going to say, yeah. 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 Like, we all have motives to, like, find significant results or find publishable results. Right. Blah, right. blah, blah, blah. And so, like, if you infer that, then I don't think...
1: I right. Think that's but justified. that's why I think that I have... I'm not completely comfortable with that being the line we are saying scientific criticism is fine as long as we don't speculate about people's motives because then the, the whole replicability crisis wouldn't have happened if we couldn't speculate about people's motives. But maybe the distinction is speculating about scientists as a group's motives rather than yeah. an individual's Rather than targeted motive.
0: individuals. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: That kind right. of feels like a little bit of resolution. Nice yeah. work. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, uh, all right. So thank, thank you, everyone, for listening, if you've made it this far. Um, we are The Black Goat. You can find us on Twitter at Black Goat Pod or on Facebook at Black Goat Pod or on our website, www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com, and we will see you next time.